Welcome to the HR Futures Podcast, brought to you by Expedite HR, the organisation behind Working Futures, the event for HR directors, and the new mobile application, Circal, the only app dedicated to developing and improving the HR profession. This podcast is also brought to you in association with Zealous, the market-leading provider of payroll, HR, and managed services. I'm your host, Kevin Green, author of Competitive People Strategy, and with me today is Craig McCoy, a serial interim HR director. I think he's done nine gigs, so we're going to get into a little bit about that. But earlier in his career, um, he was an HR director in the tech sector, advertising, media, healthcare, and the public sector. So a breadth and depth of experience that we're going to explore. So welcome. Thank you, Kevin. Very kind. Good. Um, tell us a bit about your current role, because you're working at uh, Sunrise Senior Living. That's right. I'm the interim HR director at Sunrise Senior Living, which is a premium elderly care business. Um, in, the, um, well, in the UK, we have about 50 homes. Uh, in the US, we have about 300 homes. So, uh, so it's a North American business with a UK operation? Yeah, it has operations in uh, the US, Canada and the UK. Uh, we employ about 30,000 people globally. Uh, and we're very much in a growth sector, which is elderly care homes for the affluent, essentially. Uh, homes for the affluent. So tell yes. us a bit about that. So, so um, we're relatively expensive, uh, <laughs> but we provide very high quality care. So uh, we're rated at number one on the league table by the Care Quality Commission, the CQC. Um, and uh, we are favoured by people who... Um, uh, have the disposable income to um, enjoy the latter mm. part of their lives with us. And is it sort of, you know, so you say high quality, so it's high quality sort of medical care, but the environment, mm-hmm. I suspect, is like a five-star hotel, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, it's basically uh, their mansions, essentially, and uh, they're quite big. They have uh, typically up to about 100 residents, and um, they offer facilities like fine dining. Often they have cinemas, gyms, um, they're a very nice boutique hotel feel uh, to actually live there. And the challenges for the organisation from a people perspective, I imagine finding good quality staff is going yes. to be part of it. Uh, and we experience all the same issues around uh, staff turnover, hard to fill vacancies, uh, retention rates uh, as, as the lower end of the care market. Uh, it's made worse in a sense because all of our homes are in very affluent parts of the UK with full yeah. employment. Uh, and therefore, it's more difficult to uh, attract people to come and uh, join us and stay with us in the organisation. Now, you've been there for about two and a half years, which, you know, having introduced you as a serial uh, interim, mm-hmm. uh, that's a bit, that's not quite what I imagine as an interim. So tell us a bit about why you There's think- a lot to do, yes. <laughs> um, and uh, I will be moving on, actually, uh, okay. at the end of this year. So it is coming to a natural conclusion. Um, but it's been a massive change in the business, right. um, basically moving away from the US parent uh, and having a much more UK-centric autonomous leadership uh, with its own strategy and its own growth agenda, um, which has meant that the people challenges have been um, magnified hugely. And our growth rate is quadrupling. So uh, in recent years, we've opened two new homes a year. Uh, the strategy now is to open eight. So uh, you can see in each home employs roughly 200 people. So uh, the challenges for recruitment and retention are even greater. 
okay. as we go forward. And, and are they, are they presumably, they're in disparate parts of the country, so they're not close together, so you can't get those synergies and move staff between? That's right, yeah. We have a lot around the M25, uh, but we also have a lot on the south coast, uh, okay. and then affluent parts of the UK, Cheshire, we have three homes, uh, posh parts of the West Midlands. So, uh, yeah, they're all in uh, nice parts of the UK with uh, high employment. So tell us a little bit just about why you ended up doing the interim stuff. And then perhaps we'll talk a little bit about the advantages and disadvantages. Because I think lots of people are either have used interims or thinking about using them. But also, I suspect, as people get a little bit later in their career, they think this might be the right opportunity for them. Absolutely. I love being an interim. but I mean, I first got into interim. I left the advertising industry at the height of the recession in 2009. Yeah. And I uh, thought, um, you know, a good next step for me would be to dip my toe in the water with interim. Uh, I did a couple of interims. I did one in the Northwest. I did one in Jersey for Jersey Telecom. Um, but then I actually was offered the role at Booper as the HR director for the health insurance business. So right. I was tempted to go back into the permanent world. Okay which I did for another three years. And then the Booper role came to a natural end through restructuring. This was 2013. Yeah. And I thought, you know what? I really enjoy being an interim. So tell us why you enjoy it. What is it that, that you personally get from it? I like the, the massive variety of contexts, business sectors, uh, size of business, uh, private mm. sector, public sector, uh, different transformation agendas. Uh, you get a huge variety. It keeps you very stimulated. It's challenging. Uh, you've always been on, on, on top of your game to Yeah, because you're sort of brought in to make a difference, aren't you? You're not Absolutely. brought in to do the, the yeah. standard job. You're brought in because something's normally happening. Yeah. There's always a burning platform to be extinguished. Uh, <laughs> otherwise, they wouldn't uh, yeah. uh, bring in some sort of my seniority and my rates to, yeah. uh, to do the job. So there's, there's nearly always some major challenge, a new chief executive quite often, yeah. or a massive acquisition, something of that nature. Yeah. And, and in terms of... The sort of the, the the downside then. What's the downside of being an interim for you? Is it that there's a period when sometimes you haven't got gig, or is it? The... You know what? I think I'm doing it all wrong because I seem to be always working. <laughs> well, um, but yes, I mean potentially you could have periods of time when um, the work isn't available. And yeah. uh, some interims I know deliberately take gaps, and you know it's probably better for their work life balance. Um, I just seem to keep on working, which is which is good. Um, but of course, the other thing about being an interim is that uh, you don't get any paid holiday, you don't get any paid sick, and, no. sick leave. So um, you better be healthy and uh, be willing. And what do you to, do about holidays? I mean, that's a challenge, isn't it? Because yeah. it's a bit like me. I'm doing a lot of sort of um, advisory work and stuff, yeah. and you do think, ooh, you know, a couple of days next week, I haven't got anything on. Now, do I try and fill them, or do I actually yeah. just accept there's a couple of days when I'm? Well, I've deliberately chosen a, a working style, which is part-time, essentially. So oh, okay. um, I, um, I, and I'm very happy with the, um, the income that's not generated on the days that I'm not working. Um, and it doesn't stop me from taking holidays. Um, fortunately, my current assignment, uh, my, my client, the CEO, uh, is very flexible. And uh, I, I can basically you know, take the, the equivalent mm. of a normal working year's okay. holidays. And in terms of um, sort of working part-time, what's that? Is that four days a week? So you're On average, yeah. yeah. Yeah, okay. Yeah. And, 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 and do you take that, that extra day as like a, a holiday or do you do other things outside of the core gig? I, I do a range of things. I, um, I chair London HR Connection, which is a networking group for HR professionals, which I've been doing for the last five years mm. or so. Uh, I sit on the advisory boards of three or four um, small HR consultancies. 
Um, I do uh, bits and pieces of coaching. Uh, I run some training programs for HR people. Brilliant. Um, a bit of recruitment. So I have a lot of... Uh, well, this doesn't thinking. sound like a wind-down portfolio. This sounds <laughs> no, like no, a... definitely not. No, it's a springboard for something else. So if someone was thinking about becoming a, an interim, what would you say? What's the things that they need to think about? You're always marketing yourself. So uh, you've got to be very comfortable with networking and uh, you have to be flexible in terms of pursuing opportunities that may not be that obvious. Yeah. Uh, and random connections, you just don't know where the journey's going to take you. So... Uh, you've got to be comfortable with putting yourself out there, uh, self-marketing, self-promotion. Yeah. And uh, for people who are relatively shy or not natural um, mm. uh, networkers, it can be quite challenging. For HR people, I, I suspect even senior people who may have good interpersonal skills may may think, oh, that sounds a bit like selling. I'm not quite sure that's mm. real. Because HR people have always got a strange it's view about it's true. the sort of commercial personal bit. That's right, yeah. And I suppose as an HR director, most often you're being sold to rather than selling. So yeah. you've got to put the boot on the other foot and say, well, actually, view yourself as a sales and marketing professional, not yeah. just as an HR professional. And uh, you have to flip the switch mentally to, uh, to do that because often okay. you're in the buying seat. Yeah. Now, okay, thank you for that. That is interesting. And we'll come back to that. I'm certainly interested in HR Connect. So we'll come back and talk about that. Uh, go back to the beginning of your mm. career, right? How did you get into HR? This is just one of those questions I ask everyone because we've yeah. got, we've had one or two people that said, no, I was very aware of it. I went and did psychology at a university and I wanted to be in HR. Now, that, I think that's quite rare. Yeah. I think most people somehow find themselves in HR and go, mm. actually, I think this is my calling. This is my vocation. Mm. So tell us about how your journey into Yeah, HR. so for me, I, I went to HR straight from university. But my, my degree was in French and Italian. And uh, okay. I, uh, I, I did a year teaching in Paris, teaching English in Paris as part of my course. So I had some teaching experience. Sounds um, good. So I thought, well, what do I do when I graduate? So um, I thought, well, uh, teaching, I enjoyed that. So maybe training. Uh, okay. And so um, my first job was as learning development officer for actually a local authority. Um, which um, uh, I did for about 18 months uh, and then um, uh, I got itchy feet and decided to apply for a job in, in the uh, Evening Standard. Okay. <laughs> uh, which was for uh, a, a training officer for uh, a company called DataStream, which is now part of Thomson Reuters. Um, it's when the city was really exploding, yeah, Big yeah, Bang yeah, yeah. and all, all that stuff you'll remember. Um, and uh, I did that for four years. Uh, I, I thought at that point I always stay in the training development specialism. Okay. But uh, again, I got itchy feet, which is um, something that seems to uh, occur quite often. Um, but I actually went into um, what's now called Accenture, which is then called Anderson Consulting, yeah. um, as a mature hire at the age of 30. Fantastic. <laughs> uh, so then I became client-facing and did that for a couple of years. So that's where the, the sales, the ability to pitch yeah, came from. Yeah, that, that gave me a good feel for that. And uh, I was working with clients like Barclays Bank and um, uh, what was Northwest Water. And what sort of projects were they? Were they change projects? Were Big they... change projects, okay. yeah. The one at Barclays was uh, 120 Anderson consultants on site for three years, uh, yeah. creating a new customer information database um, when the, the whole banking model was changing in the UK. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and Northwest Water was privatising to become United Utilities. I remember that well. And uh, I was involved with that as well. So there were big change projects and I was running mixed teams of consultants and uh, client personnel. Brilliant. Uh, both in the Northwest. So how there. did it, so having done the sort of training and development or learning and development role, you then ended up in consulting. When did you sort of do your first 
broad HR role to a generous or business yeah. partner role? So I had the opportunity um, after Accenture, which uh, I got a little bit um, cheesed off with just running, uh, moving around the country willy-nilly. Yeah, yeah. Um, I uh, was off the opportunity to go back to my previous employer, DataStream, because the HR director was moving on. Okay. And uh, it gave me a good platform to establish myself in my first true HR director role, which Fantastic. I was then age 32. Brilliant. And uh, it was for a company that uh, I'd set the foundations of having been the head of learning yeah. and development and uh, enabled me to um, really broaden out into the full HR portfolio uh, in a business that was very supportive of me. So I stayed there for five years and consolidated my skills as an HR director. Okay. And that was the first of what... I, today became uh, the first of 15 HR director roles that I've held <laughs> in 35 years. Because you've done quite, you've worked in, you know, obviously the Booper role you've mentioned, you worked at Sky for a few years, yeah. you were at um, Aegis, Media. Aegis Media. So you've worked in, <clears throat> not just in different sorts of businesses, but completely different sectors. Yeah. So just tell us a little bit about the difference in terms of the HR agenda and, and how you adapted to that. Because one of the great things that you see is that, you know, when you talk to headhunters about HR directors, they like pigeonholing people. You know, oh, do. you've done financial services. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's right. fine because this is right. a financial services yep. role. Or you're a public sector HR person. Yep. And I'm a great believer in actually it's the variety that brings the learning and the Indeed. ability to try different things. So mm. just tell us about, you know, your view on different sectors, different types of organisations. Yeah. And you're right, every context is different. And uh, it's not just the sector, but the size of organisation, the, um, the way in which the organisations are organised, uh, the context, uh, the change management that they're going through. Yeah. Um, so the HR skill set is very transferable across sectors. But you have to be completely a chameleon. Uh, you have to be able to respond and absorb, um, learn quickly on your feet. And uh, luckily, I have those skills, which I think are a prerequisite for a senior interim. You have to hit the ground running. You get, uh, and do you think you do you think you had those naturally, or do you think that was honed in Accenture? The ability to ask the right questions to probe leaders about the strategy and what drives the business performance, so that you can then think, well, actually, how do I deploy my HR skills and capabilities? Because I'm yeah. interested in that. You know, having to go into lots of organisations, those first month is establishing credibility and understanding, isn't yeah. it? So. Tell us a bit about how you do that. You know, yeah. what, what, what's your approach? I think um, what gave me the really good grounding was my early career in learning and development. Um, and you get used to being on your feet, being visible, influencing, running workshops, facilitating, exposure to senior leaders. So I think the learning development area is very good grounding for an HR director. And that was further honed at my time with, uh, with Accenture as a, as a client-facing yeah. consultant. Uh, where obviously, again, you're having to interface with very, very senior people. So I think uh, that grounding in that skill set prepared me well for the career of being Mm. an interim, uh, where you're always having to think think quickly, uh, show value from day one, because clients paying a lot of money for uh, for your your time and your contribution. So in terms of the, the, I suppose I'm just going to probe a little bit more, the bit about the right questions to understand the business. You yes. know, what makes this business tech? Yeah. What is it? You know, is it 
Is it about their value proposition? Is it how they differentiate themselves? Is it Because I think that that's the key to great HR is the ability to understand enough about the business strategy and what it's doing and what its drivers are yeah. and then align it. So how do you yeah. learn those questions and perfect yeah. that approach? Because that's clearly part of establishing your credibility you at the beginning. You have to have a natural curiosity about business and you have to speak the language of business. And uh, I think what a lot of HR directors fail to do is articulate their vision and strategy in a way that, that uh, is in tune with the thinking of business leaders. Yeah. And um, I often get asked as to, you know, my CEOs ask me to develop a people strategy. What should be in a people strategy? We think, well, um, mm. first of all, you've got to understand the business strategy and, and the people strategy is the intrinsic part of it. Mm. So what you can't do is from your ivory tower, look down and say, this is the best practice HR theory and apply that. So you have to be completely in tune with the rest of the business leaders. Okay. Um, Tell us a bit about, you know, when you look back on your career, uh, the highlight, the thing you're proudest of, the the thing that you think, yeah, that was was fantastic. We made a difference. Yeah, I think... um, Probably the, the example I would pick on was probably at Bupa. Because when I joined Bupa in 2010, they were really suffering because of the recession. And, uh, you know, money was tight. The profitability had fallen away. And uh, the, the business realized it had to do something different to, uh, to restore confidence. Uh, a lot of businesses are viewing private health care as a nice to have and it can be cut yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, rather than something should be invested in. And uh, Bupa therefore had to rethink its proposition. Uh, it had to be more challenging of the supply chain. So the private hospitals, the doctors, yeah, yeah. Uh, use their buying power in the market in a more purposeful way, um, which meant that the business had to be more commercial, much more okay. commercial. And that meant getting the people, the employees at, at the ground level uh, to think more commercially, to Cause, cause question decisions. Yeah, because Bupa's a sort of a, I don't know quite what it is really, yeah, but it's not a pure commercial play, Correct. is it? Yeah, it's actually a not-for-profit business. It's, okay. a, it's a mutual. And um, uh, that sort of mentality of customer service, whilst it's good on the one hand, um, doesn't mean that uh, everyone's necessarily thinking about uh, profitability and financial motives. Um, so we, we injected um, the voice of the customer to actually um, uh, explain what they're looking for, yep. the corporate customers. Uh, and we had to get um, people people on, um, on the phones, particularly in the call centres, to understand why we're asking more challenging questions, both of our customers and of our suppliers, uh, and to exercise our buying power in the market mm. uh, in a way that made the business more commercially profitable, but obviously challenging the rates of the private uh, private health yeah. uh, sector and, and and your part or the the people part of that yeah you know so clearly i'm, I'm sure there was a training and development bit there's must be around incentives there was leadership management so there was yeah i'm sure there was a whole host of different things so just want to just describe what yeah. the the intervention of such yeah. like so we basically um put together engagement workshops for every employee and uh we got their input as to um what behaviours and values they felt were important to achieve the vision. Uh, rather than just designing those at head office, we got everybody involved yeah, yeah, and yeah. Uh, you know, designing a, a way of working, which then became um, embedded. We embedded it in our performance management, our, what we call our winning behaviours, which is our uh, competency model, essentially, yeah, across yeah, the whole yeah. business. Um, and we got people uh, excited about operating in a different way. We appointed 
all our managers based on this methodology. Fantastic. And over three years, we actually returned the company back to full profitability. So uh, hence, uh, I feel very proud to have been part of that uh, restoration of uh, Booper's former Sounds glory. like you did a great job. Sounds like, a, a, you know, what we're all interested in. An organisation has clarity about what it needs to do differently and you can then, you know, design the people interventions to yeah. to, to bring that to fruition. Okay. Um, sort of move on, I suppose, in terms of um, uh, thinking about your current role. And I, you talked a bit about uh, some of the people challenges. Um Tell us a little bit about something you're currently working on that you think is innovative or new or a bit different or is just, you know, it's, it's having some impact. Yeah, yeah. So uh, the thing which I'm, I'm most excited about is the new leadership development programme within Sunrise. So essentially, um, we have 46 homes in the UK. Every home is run by a general manager. Um, and it'd be true to say that historically they've never received any form of um, leadership development. Okay. Uh, they're really highly accountable jobs. They've got 100 residents, 200 staff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, they're very heavily regulated by the CQC. It's 24-7 operation. We've got hundreds of KPIs that we measure them against, but we don't give them any development. Okay. Uh, and we have a 30% churn rate of general managers in, uh, in, in our homes and an average tenure of two years, which is quite short. Right. Yeah. Uh, so essentially, um, we put together a, le- a learning program based on the real skills needed for those people. Okay. We did the full diagnostic. Uh, it's a year-long program. And uh, they get uh, face-to-face learning plus coaching, you know, individual and peer yeah, coaching. Yeah. Uh, and it's having a major impact. So uh, we're finding so, it... Um, so I suppose two questions. Yeah. One, I suppose, is impact on performance. Yes. So it's, and secondly, presumably about retention of the yes. ones that you think are great. Yes, that's right. So um, we're finding it's a real, um, makes a real difference in the market. So basically, um, we become known for being uh, okay. a good place to coach and nurture leadership, uh, which differentiates us from, from the competition. Uh, we've seen a real increase in our performance KPIs, uh, which uh, we can see are partly attributable to the learning program. Uh, we've seen greater retention rates. We've had very few regressive losses. Great. And so uh, all in all, we're seeing a big impact, obviously having that impact on the general manager has in turn an impact on all of the staff. All the staff, because you get them to engage, so, give feedback. Then yeah. Give all things. yeah. Okay, so um, tell us a bit more. So one of the things that you, that you mentioned earlier that I thought was quite interesting is this HR connection. Yeah. Um, this sort of networking group. So tell yeah. us about what it is and how yeah. you got involved. And Sure, sure. So London HR Connection um, was uh, created initially as part of the CIPD. Oh, okay. And uh, it uh, began separating out to an extent in the sort of 1990s and uh, appointed its own uh, separate board, has a different funding model, um, is based on commercial sponsorship, uh, and uh, basically exists to promote networking and learning for the senior HR community. Uh, I got involved uh, five years ago. Um, I actually did a presentation at one of their events. Uh, I was asked to join the board as vice chair. 
uh, and six months later, they appointed me as chair. And uh, I've been chair for four and a half years. And that's a good thing, is it? Because sometimes being a chair oh, yeah, yeah. these sorts of things is a, <laughs> a bit of a poison chance. No, no, it's great. I mean, we, uh, we run monthly events. Um, we have a whole range of topics. We have speakers, chief execs, HR directors, um, academics, management gurus, lawyers. Um, we have a whole range of different subjects. You run monthly events. And the monthly events, are they, you know, I'm, I'm, this is me trying to guess, I mean, is there a sort of a glass of wine, a bit of chat before, a bit of chat afterwards, and then a bit of content in the middle, a bit of learning? Yeah, that, absolutely right, yeah. So yeah. We, we start with uh, networking and uh, a few drinks. Uh, we have a content session, is normally about an hour, and afterwards we have uh, more drinks and uh, canapes. Yeah. Uh, typically between 50 and 100 people attending. Oh, really? So how big is your sort of membership? Because that, you know, um, roughly about two and a half thousand. And, Brilliant. Uh, yeah, we have uh, yeah, a very large networking group on LinkedIn, and uh, we we open our doors to a range of um, people who've got an interest in HR, approaching HR from different lenses. So okay. uh, it could be practitioners, could be suppliers, yeah, uh, could be academics, um, some business owners. Uh, so we have a very rich mix of people who get involved, uh, which we find very stimulating. Great, and and and. And, you know, four and a half time, years is a long time as chair. Yeah. And have you delivered what you wanted to do with that? Or are you going to continue Not yet. on? Yeah, we continue growing. I mean, we want to, you know, firmly establish ourselves as um, uh, industry leading in terms of uh, senior networking for HR people. Mm. Um, and we are sponsored by a number of organisations, including the CIPD, who've uh, come on board as a sponsor. Brilliant. And, um, yeah, we, our, our work isn't yet done. There's still uh, a lot more to, uh, to grow and develop. I enjoy it. Every year I offer myself up for re-election, but uh, I seem to... <laughs> you seem to win. I seem to, I seem to always get uh, retained in the same role, which is, which is great because I enjoy it and it gives me a um, good profile. And again, these are the sort of things that uh, HR directors are desperately calling out for because they're quite lonely jobs, actually. You know, you're Indeed. part of the exec team, but you also have to be counsellor and yes. influencer. And, and sometimes it's just having someone to talk to and bounce some ideas around, isn't it? You know? It is, yeah. And it can be quite lonely uh, in the role of HR director in the same way as a, C a CEO can feel lonely. So uh, it's great to have uh, a strong peer network where you can you know, bounce ideas off in, yeah. uh, in a safe way as well. In the way yeah, it's about knowing yeah. who you can, you know, drop an email to and have a call and yeah. just have a chat. Yeah, no, I think that's really important okay let's uh, just do one more thing before we we have our break and and that's you know your view on hr's biggest failing you know what do we get wrong mm. you know you've been in the hr environment for many years you've most probably seen organizations that get it and organizations that don't um, i'm sure you've influenced this but for me you know what's your view on our profession in terms of yeah there's, uh, there's something not quite right. And I've That's been saying right. that for a number of years. And I'd be right. interested in your view. Well, I, I completely agree with that. I mean, um, very often the context in which I'm brought into organisations is because um, the previous HR director has not been effective, sad to say. I mean, in a sense, obviously, it's good for me. Yes. <laughs> um, because the business opportunity presents itself. But um, uh, usually it's because the HR director has... Um, probably been reasonably effective at doing the nuts and bolts of the functional job, but hasn't been able to have the level of influence and impact at an executive or board level. And um, as a result, the chief executive or the board have got dissatisfied with, yeah. um, with their performance, don't feel that they can um, fill the gap, and, and they end up moving on. Um, so that 
from what I've seen over the years, that's the biggest failing is that level of impact, gravitas, influencing at the senior level. Is just and, and, and you're, I mean, I think you're right. I mean, I mean, you've seen me talk about this, and I, I talk about the same sort of stuff as well. Mm. And, and what is it? Is it the education program's not right? We're not bringing the right people into the profession, or we're not developing people mid-career to do the... The strategic business commercial stuff. I mean, it's yeah. a bit of all of that. But. It's a bit of a mix. Yeah, I mean, I've, I have been encouraged to see um, a lot more younger people entering the profession and people um, making deliberate career choices at an early age about HR and, uh, you know, stronger individuals seeing HR as an important career when they're weighing up, you know, other opportunities they could be doing. So I think the um, there are signs that stronger people are coming into the profession. Brilliant. Um, I think historically, um, perhaps people have chosen HR for the wrong reasons um, because uh, they have a, a relatively non-commercial view of the role of the function and uh, they think it's all about just enforcing policies and having good processes, but yeah. they, they miss the sort of the business influence and, uh, uh, and they may not actually be the right people to sure. develop those skills. And again, in terms of though, you know, I mean, the CIPD has a very good job at giving everyone the basics and the grounding through the qualifications and stuff. But, you know, how do we develop people that perhaps have got to business part, have done a functional role in the next step, that step into being an HR director, which is much more about the business and, and perhaps yeah. a little bit less about the HR, really? Yeah, I think that's a, I think that's it's a bit of a gap in the market because I. Um, over the years, obviously, I've tried to find um, programs uh, and processes mm. to develop senior HR people, you know, t- talented HR people. And uh, whilst there are a number of generic programs on the market, there hasn't been anything which is that tailored to okay. the HR profession. Uh, and in fact, I've been, I've been asked personally to provide those sort of programs and interventions to uh, senior HR people who are looking for that help, either they're newly appointed yeah, yeah. or they're rising stars. Uh, so it is it is quite a gap, but it's really around the commercial skills of HR directors. Um, you know, businesses take for granted the functional expertise. That's, yeah. that's how you get your seat at the yeah, table. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How you retain and develop your seat at the table is that senior influencing. Okay, I'm pleased to see that you're not just uh, analysing and recognising, but stepping into it and trying to make a difference, because yeah. I think we I think there's a desperate need. So... That's the end of the first part of this podcast with Craig McCoy. Uh, join us in a couple of minutes where we'll be back. We're going to talk a bit about uh, a bit more about the HR profession. We're going to talk about what the future looks like for business and how HR impacts that, the growth in AI, machine learning. And then we're going to find out a bit about Craig the Man. So be back in a moment. Are you looking to reduce risks and operating costs? Or increase your agility and capacity? There's more pressure than ever for HR and finance to provide strategic value for the business and for CEOs. At Zealous, our expert team creates software and managed services that handle your entire payroll and HR admin processes. We believe there are two sides to the employee experience. The fundamentals that need to go unnoticed and experiences that employees really care about. And we can help you master both. We're here to make the complex simple, freeing you up to focus on your people and achieve your goals. Find out more at zealous.com.
Welcome back to the second part of HR Futures podcast. Uh, with me today is Craig McCoy, a serial HR interim. Uh, we've had a fantastic conversation in the first part. So tell us a bit about what you think the future holds. So before the break, we talked a bit about some of the shortcomings of the HR profession. We talked about what we need to do to develop that capability. Tell us a bit about what you think the future holds. You know, is it a a time of golden opportunity or is it a time where perhaps other professions will take our role if we don't step Mm. up? So, Yeah, I think it's it's an interesting time for the HR profession. Um, The opportunity is there for HR directors to be successful and for teams to be successful. I suspect that the teams will get smaller um, and I think that's true of most uh, senior functions. Uh, Things like automation will play a part. So a lot of routine tasks, transactions will get automated. Uh, machine learning and artificial intelligence will have an impact uh, in the HR space and particularly interested in artificial intelligence for uh, recruitment. Uh, in the care sector particularly, we're very values-based in terms of yeah. uh, the kind of people we're looking for. Um, and so tools like AI can enable us to make better yeah. hiring decisions. Have you seen any of that? So I could, you know, I, I mean, there's a, there's a lot of, uh, vendors out there, a lot of people talking about AI. Yeah. But when I go out and talk to HR directors or I'm looking at different businesses, I go, so how are we getting on with the automation? They go, mm, yeah. we're looking at it. Yeah. Everyone's sort of having a look, but yeah. I can't find many people that are going, we're playing with this, we've adapted it, we're yeah. using it, this works, this doesn't. Yeah. We're using predictive analytics for recruitment in the US okay. and have been for a couple of years. So we use a product, which I won't mention, but yeah. uh, there is a product that we use uh, extensively. And obviously, our US business employs 30,000 people. So uh, they've got a massive test bed. Uh, Fantastic. Uh, but basically, they use it to determine value fit uh, for recruitment of frontline staff in the and, care And industry. how do they get the data from the, the candidates? Is questionnaire. It questionnaire. Questionnaire so, based. Okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, the predictive analytics software will give a um, percentage fit of values against the requirements of the role. And have you tested that? So you've done sort of, you know... Um, Placebo testing, we'll put some people through that haven't done the test and we'll use the test on this group and see what how they you know how they fit, how they get on. Yes, they so have. validate um, And um, they found it to be accurate in terms of the prediction of um, uh, attitude and capability uh, relative to the company's values. Um, but what they found actually is it needs tuning because uh, uh, the experience has been that actually it rules out too many candidates. And as a result... Uh-huh. Um, you end up with a shortage of uh, qualified candidates who meet your, meet your values criteria. Uh, and in a tough recruitment market, uh, in, in, in many ways, what you don't want to do is limit your candidate pool. No. Um, but conversely, you don't but want to But could you use it in. later on in the mix? So actually, we don't use it at right the beginning to get rid of the candidates. We look at a broader pool and we just use it as part of the selection process, perhaps. Yeah, potentially, yeah. I mean, it's been used at the moment for volume hiring. And yeah. uh, it's uh, basically a sifting process to uh, determine, you know, shortlist of candidates. For and what about bringing it to the UK? Are you having we're looking at that, yeah. We're not currently deploying it, but uh, we have the opportunity to use the same products or other products. Yeah. Um, uh, so recruitment is the most the most clear um, opportunity for yeah. us um, because we know that uh, you know our, our retention rates are not as high as they should be. Yeah. Um, we we, we um, experience thirty percent staff turnover, which is about industry average, but yeah. uh, we want we want to get much better. 
I'd have thought you'd have had it lower than the industry when you think about the quality of, you know, the the homes that you're working in, the type of residence you have. You would hope that you, yes. you'd have a better retention. Than- I can see why, why people would think that. I mean, um, the, the reality is that all our homes are in affluent parts of the UK with full employment. Okay, and uh, okay. the candidate pool is therefore more limited. And uh, we're happy to therefore increase our salary rates, for example. Mm. Uh, also, the demands uh, that our residents place on our uh, our staff are, are sometimes pretty high. I mean, yeah. uh, our residents are uh, used to getting their own way. They mostly um, have been in positions of authority, retired chief executives, uh, sure. and they're paying uh, yeah, a yeah, good yeah. amount of money for the service. So. Okay. Um, uh, our employees can experience it's a, it can be a tough yeah. gig. So one of the other areas, I suppose, that you, you would imagine that we should be able to deploy automation within HR is, you know, just some of the activity that we do. So, you know, some of the activity that shared services have to undertake if you've got a shared service, but, you know, yeah. I don't know, payroll queries, yes. queries about holiday, yes. you know, all yes. of that stuff, you know. So we're trying to make the service more self-service so that we get rid Absolutely. of the human interaction and we can have yeah. high-quality people making a difference. Yeah. Have, you, have, you, have you seen either where you are now or in other organisations people sort of deploying really good technology to take out some of the routine activity. Yeah, I mean, uh, and we're starting to do that uh, within Sunrise, but uh, we're not as advanced in it as uh, some of the other organisations mm. that I've worked for. I've worked for companies like BT, for example, who have um, yeah, very well-developed employee portals, self-service, yeah. uh, and uh, a much more sophisticated way of query handling through automation, yeah. uh, mixture of in-sourced and outsourced provision. So that, that thing you said right at the beginning, which is I suspect HR is going to be smaller mm. in size. Yeah. Uh, is that because, you know, the pressure to be more efficient is going to get us to invest in technology to take out what we've just talked about, some of the routine activity, some of the stuff where we could be better and then yeah. that leaves us with a smaller function? That will certainly be part of it. I think there's also um, a need for HR to move their own services up the value chain so that they're more influential, providing more knowledge working. Uh, and they're having different types of intervention rather than routine query handling, mm-hmm. for example. There's also uh, very much a shift towards skilling and enabling line management. And so uh, line management will do yeah. perhaps many of the things that HR have become used to doing or comfortable with doing. And there's, I still see um, uh, ambiguity and sometimes a bit of conflict in the model between the role of the line versus the role of HR. Um, I think increasingly HR teams will be smaller, uh, perhaps more specialised, uh, but clearly adding value. Yeah, and advisory and not yeah, and, You know, the management and leadership of people is a line responsibility and sometimes we, f- well, sometimes we forget that. Sometimes we, we do we forget do. that. That's very true. <laughs> um, just sort of thinking about um, the future and staying with that for a moment. So if, a, I don't know, a 21-year-old comes to you and is, you know, Perhaps someone introduces them to you because they're thinking about going into HR. What would your advice be? Um, absolutely do go into HR. Um, I think um, one of the great benefits of being in, in HR is the exposure you get to senior leaders um, and often from a quite a, a young age. And um, I think uh, a bit about what I was saying before about getting yourself into high visible, uh, highly visible HR roles like learning development, mm. um, consultancy, transformation projects, uh, recruitment, areas that will give you a lot of exposure to senior management. 
um, will enable you to establish yourself at leadership level at a younger age. I mean, I was fortunate enough to be a director at the age of 32. Mm. Um, and that is, you know, I'm sure there are HR directors younger than that, but um, uh, you can get to a very senior visible position uh, in a relatively short space of time in the HR function. So that would be part of the yeah. selling uh, message I would give if I was promoting and HR. And also, I mean, I think there's a recognition that uh, if you look at businesses, you know, it's all about intangibles. It's all about, if you really get to the core of it, it's about people. So Indeed. I think leaders are beginning to recognise that the That's people right. stuff is more important. So yeah. it isn't a support function. It is, you know, the driver of value to pick up your point. Absolutely. Uh, let's think about um, uh, the scope of HR. Because one of the things I suppose I'm also interested in is sometimes I think we limit the activity we get involved in. And you mentioned change and transformation programs earlier. Yeah. Uh, and, and obviously you were in consulting, so you've yeah. been involved in those. Do you think HR should be leading those? Do you think we should have the skills to manage those sorts of projects? Um, and if yes, then how do we go about developing that? Because I think it's a different skill set, really. I agree. Well, firstly, I think uh, HR people absolutely should be leading transformation projects. Um, I think often they're not because uh, they're perceived not having the skill set to be able to be effective in the role. And organisations um, often you know, create roles of transformation director and actually the transformation director and the HR director should be the same person. Essentially. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that happens a lot. Um, but because a lot of transformation is around people, behaviour, culture, um, this is all meat and drink to the HR profession. So um, questioning you know, why aren't HR people leading these projects? Um, I think it's because often the HR um, leader is seen as being a functional leader in the steady state. Yeah. Uh, and they've um, got a reputation for, you know, doing transactional things very well. Um, but uh, the belief of chief execs and boards is that you need a little, um, a little bit difference in terms of the kind of leader you want to lead a transformation project. And as a result, the HR director can get just overlooked. Yeah. And uh, I think it is about having that different skill set and developing HR uh, leaders to be change agents. Yeah, I mean, would you say to sort of people that are business partners or perhaps heads of learning and development, you know, try and get on a change programme and a transformation programme, try Absolutely. and get, learn that skill set, understand how to under, you know, undertake major significant change within an organisation because that will you know, give you the experience, the skills to be able to apply that trade when perhaps you're on the board absolutely a leader okay so i think the, the emergence of the od function organization development function um is a really important skill set for the hr director to have yeah i mean i was talking to in one of these previous podcasts and we were talking about the future of of hr and someone said well in reality you want senior hr people to have you know the skills of a great consultant you know the ability to influence to listen to diagnose but then to be able to articulate change, be able to develop programs, and yeah. and it and I went, yeah, I think you're right, but I yeah. wouldn't have articulated it that way myself. Yeah. It's a tough job, isn't it? It is HR director, <laughs> very well, multi-skilled. It, it, it is. There is there is a there is a breadth to the role, which I think is you know you are a functional leader, you are a director of the business, and most organisations are going through some kind of change or absolutely disruption. So. So at the beginning of our uh, interview or conversation, Craig, we were talking a bit about the interim stuff. Yes. Um, 
So tell me about um, what you think will happen. Do you think there's going to be growth in interim? So do you think people early in their HR career should be thinking, actually, at some point, I may end up as a serial interim, so I need Mm. to think about the skills and abilities? Yeah. What I've noticed over the years is that the age of interims in the HR profession is getting younger and younger. Uh, I've even seen people in their 20s becoming interim or choosing to be interims, taking interim roles. Uh, whereas maybe 10 years ago, it was predominantly people who sort of 50 plus uh, who, who, who chose the interim route. Yeah. So it's becoming a, um, a pattern of choice for people at a younger and younger age. Um, I think it also ties into average tenures being shorter. Yeah. And uh, people moving organisations, you might say, well, actually, it's also to do with um, the generational shift for millennials who are more, want yeah. to be more mobile, more flexible, more agile. Um, so I think interim is definitely on the increase. Um, it's got benefits for the employer as well. They can, uh, you know, choose different people, different skill sets for certain projects, certain and also they can they can try before they buy. Can't Absolutely, they? you know, Absolutely. they might be thinking actually we might want, but we don't know quite what we want. Yeah. So why don't we yeah. put an interim and yeah. and let them help us refine Absolutely. and think about what we're looking yeah. for? So it's a growing trend, that's for sure. Okay, so why don't we sort of finish up by finding out a bit more about Craig the man? So. Tell us about what your passions in life are, <laughs> apart from HR and yeah, yeah, yeah. change management. So when you're at home, is it literature, theatre, are you a sports fan? Just tell us about a few things about, you know, what you do away from work. Sure, sure. So uh, I'm married with a 20-year-old uh, daughter who's at university, so I'm now officially uh, empty nester. Mm-hmm. So uh, enjoy the benefits you, of that. <laughs> I suspect you'll come back I exactly the same. A bit like a homing pigeon, yeah. Absolutely. I'm sure that's true. Um, so um, my wife and I have, are exploiting this well, um, well-deserved well freedom after, after all these years. So uh, we're having more exciting holidays. Uh, we've just um, had a great trip to India for a Fantastic. couple of weeks. We're off on a wine-tasting tour in Germany for uh, Both uh, a couple of weeks. So what, uh, was the, the, what was the highlight of the trip to India? What was the things that you think comes out um, of that? Well, that experience will stay with me for a long time. Yeah, I think probably going on safari in India, which not many oh. people do obviously people think about safaris in Africa uh, so we went to Assam in the eastern part of India we had a uh, great safari we saw tigers in the wild oh. as well as uh, rhinos elephants and uh, perhaps the more usual animals um, so that was a great experience and um, yeah one that will always stick with us uh, so that, that was a fantastic trip so uh, it's such a huge country I'd love to go back again yeah and what's when's your what's your next holiday? What's the next big one? I know you got wine tasting in Germany. Yeah. I think I can understand what that will be like. But yeah, tell yeah, us about yeah. your next big adventure. Yeah. What do you think? So um, if things can't calm down in Sri Lanka, I'd like to go to Sri Lanka yeah. um, because we've heard such great things about the people, yeah. the country, the lifestyle. Uh, so that that's definitely firmly on the agenda. But places we've never been to before, places like Australia, New Zealand, I've never been yeah. that far. When when you uh, when you're parents with young children, you tend to stick yes. in Europe. <laughs> so it's uh, uh, we're now founding that um, we've got more opportunity, and the interim lifestyle lends itself well to uh, to that because you can have longer gaps and uh, okay. another benefit of being an interim. Fantastic. And so, apart from the travel, what else is there? Reading, uh, theatre, films. I don't know. I'm always in yeah. music. Yes. Well, yes, music. I um, growing up in the 1970s. I was in Manchester. Uh, I was very mm-hmm. much into uh, Bowie and Roxy. Uh, so uh, those were very formal. We had a nightclub in Manchester yeah. that only played Bowie and Roxy, actually. Um, so uh, that always stuck with me. But I was always more on the 
the Northern Soul disco uh, okay. side. I was never really into heavy rock. Uh, okay. And so that stuck with me. Some of my musical tastes sort of uh, got stuck in the 70s and 80s somewhere. Well, so. I'll tell you what, I'm going to see um, Pete Tong. He's oh, playing, okay. Uh, yeah. Pete Tong and the orchestra. Uh, yeah, Ibiza Classics. I think that'll be a cracking <laughs> night. Because it'll all be people of my age going back to 1980. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and in terms of... Um, Theatre, uh, films, anything that you particularly have seen and recommend? Yeah. Or? Well, the films, um, people think I'm a bit odd, but I love horror films. So oh, okay. uh, I, uh, ever since I was a teenager, I was, I was you know, Frankenstein, Dracula, it's always stuck with me. So uh, I enjoy horror films, the gorier the better. Oh, okay. Uh, so um, uh, I'm always disappointed when they're not just not scary enough. And what about the, what about the family? Do, do they partake in your well, hobby? Well, luckily, um, my wife likes horror films as well, so we do have that in common. So maybe okay. there's a reason we're married. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, uh, thank you for spending the time with us, Craig. I think it's been a great podcast. I think there's a lot of insight, um, a lot of things that, that people can take from our conversation. So thank you for spending the time with us. Thank you, Kevin. I enjoyed it.